I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Before we get going here, I wanted to let you know that Scaffold has a sponsor, and that sponsor is the Architecture Foundation. Many of you already know how amazing the AF is, bringing new voices to the conversation about architecture in London and around the world. They host debates, make films, commission critical writing, curate exhibitions, publish books, and engage industry figures with the aim of improving the quality of discourse around London's built environment. One of my favorite things about the AF is their school database, which has collected hundreds of studio briefs over the years and made them freely available online. Whether you teach, study, or practice architecture, the school's database offers a fascinating glimpse into the questions that architecture schools are asking today. Visit architecturefoundation.org.uk slash schools to learn more. Okay, now on to the show. You're listening to Scaffold, a podcast featuring interviews with architects, artists, and designers. I'm your host, Matthew Blunderfield. In this episode, I speak with Farshid Musavi, who in 1993, together with Alejandro Zarapolo, co-founded Foreign Office Architects. After FOA disbanded in 2009, Musavi established her eponymous practice, FMA, and has delivered a range of projects including the Museum of Contemporary Art in Cleveland, the Victoria Beckham Stores in London and Hong Kong, and housing projects in Montpellier and La Défense. I met with Musavi in September at a gallery in Mayfair, where we talk about, among other things, her interest in the idea of function as a way of understanding a building's agency, and how she looks to contemporary philosophers to help make sense of architecture's contingency to daily life. We also talk about how Musavi's outlook has shifted since disbanding FOA and establishing her own practice. And perhaps most importantly, we talk about Musavi's views on gender and minority identities and the creative possibilities that open to designers who exist outside established frameworks. And now, here's the interview. I hope you enjoy it. Like I've become more and more interested in both connecting architecture built forms to um, people's experience of it, um, but also to identify where the work of an architect stops and where that kind of production or the construction of experience uh, becomes also a consequence of people's entering the space between between themselves and, and the objects because historically, especially obviously modernism, uh, has been has trapped us since then in the idea that buildings produce meanings or or that buildings tell us what to do. Bil- buildings determine determine what we do, and I think in reality, people have a lot more agency of their own that we in that kind of um, 
in that understanding of architecture, we give credit to them too. Um, and so I would say buildings, um, structures, you know, spaces have ethics, um, whether it's transparency, whether it's verticality, whether it's um, openness and, or, and obviously a combination of them. Um, and these are quite abstract, abstract, um, if you like, qualities, uh, you know. And when we come into contact, when we experience, when we perceive uh, these affects uh, are what we go away with in the form of feelings and thoughts and meanings and sensations, which I call affections, the kind of affections that we go away with, are a consequence of both those affects that we experience, but also the kind of subjectivity that we bring into this kind of space. Mm -hmm. Because we all, uh, you know, have different interests at a particular time, we uh, have different kind of biographies, uh, and they actually um, alter you know, the way we enter a certain space and, uh, if, you know, we listen to the same music and, and we do, it doesn't necessarily impact us in the same way. I think it's about recognizing that for sure, uh, architecture is not just about use and it's not about building only. It's about what buildings do, how they perform. Mm. Uh, and in the context of a certain use and activities we, we would go there for but that as a consequence of the way they are organized, the way they're arranged, their scale, texture, colors, um, it, it is to loosen, loosen buildings to make them, um, to understand them both as concrete but also ambiguous so that they become more inclusive, so that they allow people to respond to, build, to buildings and to appropriate buildings also in their own way. I think that um architects have their own ways of coming to terms with the variability and complexity and um, randomness of use. This, this is a kind of universal problem in terms of how to make sense of um, the ir irreducible complexity of life <laughs> and the way that people use a space that one has designed. Different architects have different methods for making sense of it. What I was drawn to in exploring your method is the way that you apply kind of precision to this complexity of, of use and of life. Um, the precision lies in the language you use and the, the kind of philosophical tradition that I think you're, you're being a part of, or you're participating in, in addition to people like Deleuze um, you're in conversation with thinkers like Jacques Rancière. In fact, you were sitting on a stage with him at the Royal Academy not too long ago, um, talking about micropolitics. Um, and there's a kind of lineage, I guess, intellectually, that you've found solace in participating in, in order to make sense of how little control you have as an architect over the outcome of your work. There are also diagrams that I find totally fascinating, which I've, I've sketched out here to help me remember. There's one, I think, in the most recent um, function book, which if I'm going to try and describe it, 
there's like three columns. The first is human agency, and then in brackets, architect. Um, this is a person who has the ability to make choices about um, the assembly of building elements. The middle column is non-human agency, in brackets, style. And this is a cluster of, as you call them, affects that give um, propensity to physical agents. And then we have human agency, brackets, user on the very end. Uh, and this is a unique subject positions. And then there's this kind of amoebic boundary within which we have the building on one end, an assemblage of elements. We have a stream of affects in the middle. And then we have different subjective experiences and kind of tethering to those affects on the, the far end. And I find it so um, bewildering and amazing that this kind of diagram emerged from an, an architect trying to, I think, make sense of and become comfortable with the total lack of control um, that, um, that they have in terms of what happens to the work after you let go of it. Um, and maybe building on this reference, what I want to talk about now is language, actually, and your decision to participate in a certain kind of discourse and um, build off of the ideas of a certain group of thinkers um, Deleuze and Rancière um, being key here. Because yeah. um, there's so many different ways of doing it, I guess. And so why for you is this tradition of philosophy so important or so valuable in order to make sense of your, your work? Yeah. I think you said it correctly, that I'm I've been trying and I continue to um, uh, make sense of, actually, um, you know, what I, what I do as a, as, an, as a practicing architect. Um, you know, architecture, you know, relates to people, relates to culture, and I'm interested in, in understanding uh, in what way it makes a difference, uh, and in what way it, it relates to culture and society and people. Um, so I think that, the, you know, the, the diagram that you've just described um, maps, if you like, um, the process that I was describing before between affect and affection. So, you know, the architect arranges buildings, makes very, very specific decisions. You give the same brief to two or three architects, they will arrange them in different ways. Mm -hmm. And historically, the, the idea of style has been, you know, either belonging to, uh, you know, the architect uh, or, let's say, a period of time or a kind of a certain nation or geography, you know, that's how we've understood kind of style. And what I'm interested in is understanding the style of the building, not the style of the architect, the style of the building. And to understand that this, the, every building, you know, performs in a certain way because of its assemblage and, be, and, there, and, and, and therefore the, the kind of affects that it emits. Um, and that the relationship between the architect and, and people is indirect. So I, I'm actually not interested in randomness. I, I would take away the word randomness completely. Uh, I think that buildings are very precise, which is also what you just mentioned. Buildings are extremely precise. You know, we spend, you know, six to 10 years making extremely precise decisions about buildings. And that's because buildings need to stand up, they need to be safe, they need to be, you know, it, there are all kinds of regulations, you know, common regulations and, you know, uh, building regulations 
that rightly so they are there for the you know the health and safety of people however uh, we if 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 a building just followed the reg regulations then it would not be inspiring you know it would every building would be like every other building so what what we architects do is to interpret those regulations in incorporate them but go beyond them go beyond them and that's we go beyond them through the way we make decisions about the physical assembly of buildings uh, to give them different scales textures colors etc and so buildings are very precise but the way they perform is not in a deterministic way they perform through affects are we come into con to contact with buildings not through the narrative of the architect who's gone not through some kind of symbolism uh, that the architect may have uh, used as inspiration if you like to get to his kind of to, to deal with his kind of um, creative process mm -hmm. you know i'm not against those i mean inside the creative process but once the building is is complete the architect is gone and the building performs through its own actuality what i'm interested in though is that yes the architect is gone but i think through this insistence on engaging with your work critically uh, in text and in conversation that is recorded and becomes a kind of supplement to the oh, way yes, the I'm, I'm not saying architects don't have influence. Absolutely. So they are the ones who, who make buildings for what they are, and they are the ones who are responsible for the kind of affects that buildings have. But they stop there. They don't tell people. They cannot determine how people perceive those affects. They cannot uh, guarantee that people will walk away with the same thoughts and meanings and feelings and sensations, affections. Mm. Uh, that's, that's, I think, so it's both to include them while one is working on buildings, um, but to also actually work with their looseness like that once with with all that precision that buildings uh, involve that the way they are actually their presence is both if you like is is both precise but also uh, loose i'm wondering why for you it's so important to have the theoretical work in addition to the architectural uh, and you might say that they're always interlinked. That might be the answer. But I'm still curious because obviously some architects don't feel the compulsion to write at all about their work. Right. Well, and I mean, if you, you, if we need to kind of remember that I'm also an academic. Uh -huh. uh, and uh, so, it, you know, and I've always been an academic ever since I've taught, mm -hmm. as I've practiced, so, you know, 26, 27 years. And so I have, I have the opportunity, if you like, mm -hmm. uh, to use my teaching mm -hmm as a way to think about architecture and to gain a certain distance. And obviously academia is, is interested in, in the larger way in which you know, we go, I mean, I go to both help my students learn, but also to learn, to learn the, the field of architecture as part of a very, if you like, one that, is, uh, that plays a critical role in the construction of culture. Mm. And, you know, and, and that's why I think in, in that sense, one has to try to make sense of it, one has to situate it. Uh, and I do think that because, for example, philosophers are those who do try to generalize and kind of understand 
the relevance of, say, cinema or art or music or architecture, you know, in the larger sense, it's a very good resource. Now, obviously, it's not interesting to apply philosophy to architecture. That's not what I'm interested in. But I, I, I'm interested in reading and, and understanding where is it that architecture, where in the work of which philosophers am I able to see a resonance with architecture? And so the reason why I gravitated towards, the, I didn't read Deleuze and then go and do the ornament book. I started actually, you know, looking at 200 buildings and uh, trying to, and, you know, to redefine, if you like, the word ornament, which we discussed earlier, uh, um, in, in, in a way that would make it productive, useful in the practice of architecture today. Which meant questioning how it was how it was thought of, mostly in kind of symbolic terms, and so you know it's kind of you, I started digging into you know symbols, meanings, people, you know what we do as as architects, and kind of trying to untangle this and say yes, of course, you know, ornament. Uh, somehow is related to the construction of meaning and is to do with aesthetic experience. But what is it that we are trying to produce kind of through it? Uh, and I would say it's about uh, creating, the, you know, using or creating buildings as platforms that, that where, where meaning is constructed, but it's not people who generate ultimately those buildings alone. Mm. I listened to a conversation that you had with Charles Jenks and Diane Sedgich um, uh, as a part of the um, publishing of uh, your most recent function book on style in 2015. And um, Jenks was, he was kind of getting in there and trying to untie certain knots he found uh, in, in the book that had to do around what he seemed to think was a, a denouncement of authorship in architecture um, and a kind of emergence of um, a style that is generated by the specific kind of function of the building to a certain extent. Yeah, I, 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 yeah let me clarify. I mean, I, I mean first of all, I, I, I you know, have a lot of respect for, for Charles Jenks and of course him and I share interest in a number of topics, but we couldn't deal with them more differently. Mm. Um, and that's precisely, you know, you know he, he stands for those ways that I've tried to kind of, uh, you know, question. And I want to just to add those ways include cultural, symbolic, representational exactly. Um, exactly. aspects of exactly. building. So going to, you know, discussion of authorship is interesting because we live at the time, first of all, that uh, the idea that an architect um, has a style, let's say, you know, uh, a kind of a signature of its own that is entirely kind of discreet and other than other people's is kind of questionable because we are, you know, we are living in a digital age, we travel a lot, we see things, we get influenced by everything that is thrown at us. Uh, whether it is consciously or unconsciously, we look at things other than our own. And I'm actually more interested in how you take those kind of um, inspirations and, 
and evolve them into something else than to see myself as entirely different from other people. So I'm interested in precedent, but the style book is all about putting you know, architects that they may not even be aware of, of that, but I try to put things that are very similar, you know, page after, you know, uh, one another, so that we highlight their differences, not their similarities. Their similarities are a given. Um, and, you know, but what's interesting is, what is it that shifts? I'm interested in the shifts. Um, so that's the discussion of kind of authorship, because I, I think it becomes really questionable. Of course, there are people who go into great lengths to try to repeat themselves uh, over and over again, and their work becomes recognizable, but I'm not really interested in that at all, because I think buildings are not about the architect. Buildings are about people and how they perform standing here relative to, uh, you know, to, to, to society. So, you know, so, so there is that authorship. However, I am not saying that the architect is not the author of a particular building. I'm against authorship seeing understanding it as a signature where the building becomes a scaffold to represent the architect. So that's kind of the word representation. I'm not interested in that kind of idea of representation where the building is supposed to represent a nation, represent an architect, represent. However, of course, in each case, in each case, the architect is the author. The architect, despite the fact that we have uh, lots of different experts and consultants that we work with today, the only p person in the kind of the design team who pulls everything together and makes architectural decisions about them is the architect. Of course, working within within a very complex environment where the architect doesn't have always control, full control, but but you know, with less or more control, in the end, it becomes the work of the architect. However, I I, I go back to the building. I'm interested in buildings, not architects, and and the building itself then each time performs in a certain way and, and has a style of performance as a, as a result of all those decisions that the architect has made. However, the building is independent while once the architect is gone. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and that's when the building becomes a bit more open and detached from these issues of representation. You know, we can uh, organize tours or write, uh, you know, uh, essays about buildings and um, and give them, kind of, put them in larger context and understand them in bigger ways, but or even in symbolic terms. But that's not necessarily the experience of a building. I would say buildings are closer to how people understand contemporary art today. I mean, you know, you don't go there and think of it. You know, it, 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 the interesting thing about, you know art is precisely the fact that it is so polysemic. You know, we stand in front of a work of art and we will all take away different experiences from it. And I think buildings have the same kind of perform in a similar way. Um, would it bother you if I, if I said that I could still tell um, if a building is designed by you versus someone else? No, this is a, no. This is a Farsi Musavi building and this isn't. No, but you are an expert. Am I? You, you are. You are an architect. You are an architect. And you obviously know enough of my projects to be able to make that recognition. But ordinary people out there 
don't don't know you know the work of Fashid Musavi they might know you know Fashid Musavi say with the Victoria Beckham store but that looks nothing well they may never ever see the Cleveland Museum or they may never ever see um, the residential building in, in Montpellier and even if they do Montpellier is curvilinear the Nanterre housing complex is something extremely different it's much more kind of angular uh, they are all different. They are each one of them. And there are, I, I am absolutely interested in learning from your own practice. And I'd like to think that I, I think uh, critically about our, our own work the same way that I've done with uh, other people's work and learn from it. And therefore, there are things you carry. And, but it's very important with every project to be also open to new set of trajectories and new decisions because no two projects give you the same kind of opportunities, if you like, or ingredients. You know, they will vary in scale, they will vary in terms of, you know, so I, I have no problem in you recognizing it, but you are an architect. And I don't think, again, buildings or architecture should be done for other architects. I liked how in that conversation with Jenks, you were talking about a desire not to map your identity or authorship onto a building, but to, in a sense, become the building. <laughs> at, one okay. point, at one point you said like, that you wanted to become a museum, <laughs> not that you wanted the museum to represent you. And to me, that's totally fascinating that um, in some ways like, there's this desire to hurl oneself into the realm of like, the material world, <laughs> or I'd either identify with the material expression or imbue materiality with a certain sense of uh, I don't remember Animism. saying it, but, but I, I like it. <laughs> I like it. We've got something. Ooh. Now, a new sound. Very melodic. A good, solid sound. The music. The instruments. Voices, and it's ready to go. Now, play it. I want to talk briefly about this transition uh, from your initial practice with um, Alejandro Zarpello, uh, FOA, Foreign Office Architects, to what you are now, FMA, Farshid Musavi Architects. And um, I guess, first of all, the experience of being a young, exciting practice uh, that um, in some ways defined a, a zeitgeist or participated in it, insofar as um, you are a part of the first generation of architects who are designing with computers and um, designing buildings with a kind of abstract fluidity um, and then kind of emerging from that and transitioning into your own practice um, I guess my question is... What's the shift? What's, what's the shift and also <laughs> like, is there an anxiety around relevance? Um, first of all, as one ages, and second of all, as one um, departs from a partnership and an identifiable, if not brand, then practice? I think my current, you know, the current anxiety of FMA is, is, is about situating um, architecture as a kind of uh, political practice. Uh, as one that is that is not just formal, 
and I think that um, we, I, I mean, I, I'm, you know, uh, proud of the work we did at FOA, but I think at that time our preoccupation was to, um, was to situate architecture in, in the field of di the digital, understanding the, the kind of the, the, the extra resources, uh, intellectually also, that we would have for the making of architecture using um, computers. Um, but I, 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 I don't think that, I think there was, you know, the, the reason why it became very recognizable was because there was a lot of repetition. I'm not interested in that repetition now. Uh, and I, I, I think that whereas the aesthetic of uh, FOA projects were understood as being part of, if you like, a zeitgeist of fluidity, you know, computers, etc. Um, I'm, 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 now computers are mainstream. I mean, to talk about computers seems quite banal because it's like a pencil for everyone. So we've, it's been assimilated, uh, you know, into the kind of the practice of architecture, mainstream as well as the not mainstream. Uh, so I think we need to kind of define the next set of problems. And I, I'm, I think it's, it's interesting to, to understand that the aesthetic of, of, a, of a building um, has certain agencies and that it's not to represent computers and fluidity. Sometimes fluidity may be the right affect to use if you're working with a ferry terminal or, a, or, you know, or an airport, but not if you're designing perhaps a hospital. You know, perhaps you should pursue other kinds of affects. Mm. And so I'm interested in the relationship between aesthetic and politics. So you could say even aesthetics and kind of function um, as, being, as being kind of spatio-temporal and being completely specific to certain contexts. Mm. That doesn't mean, I don't mean by context, just the physical context, but all the kind of the wider set of issues that that um, you know both limit and uh, give rise to to the project and to understand it as kind of as a as a as a as a space of inquiry as a space of experimentation and to find to look for what those kinds of experimentations and inquiries should be directed towards and that should not be directed towards the recognition of the architect and authorship but what it does for society at large specifically those people who will, who will definitely you know, enter and engage with that building. I want to read something that um, you and Zara Polo co-authored as a part of a 2G publication in 2000. Um, and I think it was called like FOA Code Remix was the title of the essay, which was like a series of position statements, I think. Um, one of them was this, um, quote, um, we don't make developments in architecture by writing more about minorities, migrations, gender, globalization, or new cultural patterns, but instead by finding a connection between the emergent political, economical, and social processes and certain architectural techniques, geometries, and organizations. And to me, that, that was interesting given it was a statement made in 2000. Um, that isn't exactly um, pushing itself away from certain inherently political subjects, but also is expressing an uninterest in them. Yes. And instead of focus on, as you say, techniques, geometries, 
organizations. This is part of the computational mm. kind of moment, mm. I think. But when you're talking about your anxiety now is to be political or to, to be concerned with the politics of architecture or all architecture's influence in the politics of daily life. I wonder how you, how you hear that statement now. I think it, 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 it was, a, I think it was an interest, but not necessarily uh, delved into. Uh, and, and I don't think there was, I don't think that we had yet built um, a kind of a, 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 you know, intellectually, a relationship between those wider interests and the, the kind of the instruments of architecture. So I, I think I can now look back at Yokohama and, and understand it and talk about it in political ways that I don't think we ever talked about it in those terms, but, but it is. So, I, I, you know, sometimes you do things also perhaps in, intuitively and uh, it, it takes time to actually understand, you know, a good project uh, for me is actually when you are, when you don't worry about the result, but that you, you worry about the decisions you're making. Mm. And that's when the project becomes something beyond what you had thought of to, at the beginning. And, but it will be, um, it will be kind of um, charged with a lot of good decisions that, that make the building work in many, many different ways. It's a kind of building a complexity to the building through thinking constantly about the relationship between buildings and many, many different arenas in which it belongs to. Buildings, you can talk about them in relationship to the environment, you can talk about them in terms of obviously uh, you know, social issues, you can talk about them, you know, spatially. So there, there are there are many ways. Economically, you can you can you, know, you can talk about them in many ways. And so the architect makes lots and lots of decisions. And so it's it's more about you know immersing yourself in that in that process of making decisions and at any one time um, steer the project towards kind of these wider issues. Mm -hmm. But the precise outcome is is really more or less close to when you have to, you know, somebody says kind of stop thinking and it needs to go and be, get built. I, 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 you know, it's not about starting out with a clear idea mm. for, for, the, for the outcome. Um, there's something I really wanted to talk about which was uh, with you, which was gender. Yes. And um, in particular, a small editorial you wrote in the Architecture Review in 2012 titled there should be no female role models, which at the face is quite an eye-catching title. And it was totally unexpected actually reading it because what I found was that um, you're making this argument about, um, well, first of all, derived from a theory of gender um, that you had encountered in the work of, again, Gilles Deleuze uh, and Felix Guattari. And so, at, at, Initially, there's a surprise there of like, how is she going to bring these very difficult thinkers into the pages of the architectural review? <laughs> and is she going to pull this off? <laughs> or is this just going to be a pretentious kind of strut? Hmm. And, and what happened was really incredible, actually, for me to read. You're making this distinction between being a woman and becoming woman. Uh, and... Um, <clears throat> 
what you're saying is, whereas the idea of being a woman implies rebellion against being a man, becoming woman is productive. It's a process of disengaging from conventions and opening out to processes of becoming completely different. Um, I just want to continue reading because I feel like this approach to the subject of gender, not only in architecture, but in professional practice of any kind, is sorely lacking in conversations about gender now. So you go on to say that rather than arguing for female architects to be the same as male ones, women should differentiate themselves not only from men, but from other women too. Uh, where male architects have role models to emulate, the absence of any idealized female style, career trajectory, or behavioral conventions gives women the freedom to become and produce something as yet unheard of. And that just made me so happy because you kind of open up the possibility of becoming woman to everybody. Yes. Um, and this sounds completely ridiculous coming from me, um, a man, but um, there's, a very, there's a very rich um, and open-ended attitude towards gender in those lines that I just read. Um, it's, very, it's very complex, and it's not something that usually comes off well. It's not, it's not immediately quotable and easily circulated, right? And so it takes a bit of time to address and think about and digest. But I really think that um, we ought to do that. <laughs> because it's, there's, there's a real value there in, in approaching gender as a more like multifaceted um, subject matter that is full of potential and that allows us again to kind of arrive at new approaches to essentially being ourselves. I mean, I think the less is, uh, is amazing in many ways. I, I think what is wonderful saying it just slightly different ways about the concept of becoming a woman is to really think about any position of minority as a source of creativity and strength uh, at looking at things from a different perspective and seeing possibilities that somebody who is not a minority is part of the majority is unable to, to, to see because they see it through you know, the lens of the consensus. Uh, and so it's, it takes the discussion even beyond gen gender. It's, it's, it's about any kind of minority. And so anyone who adopts, who chooses to adopt a position of minority, so this is not just being born as a minority, but also adopting a position of minority, it means set, putting yourself slightly outside and looking at things from a different angle and pro providing, using that uh, kind of position as a way to produce, make decisions that um, you know, the, the majority doesn't make and therefore be creative and, and give, give to the world uh, a kind of anotherness that would otherwise not exist. And this can be done by any race, by any gender, you know, it is, it is about creativity. Ultimately, you know, if I, 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 of course, it's great if women uh, adopt this position and use their kind of position of minority, which we still are, I mean, I'm not sure if it will be forever, um, over time, a woman or Farshid Musavi, uh, you know, if she's understood as 
you know, her, her, her gender will be in some ways irrelevant. It's the fact that my work is not the stereotype. My work looks different and uh, that I'm interested in the kind of the creativity that, that architecture uh, can, can bring along, you know, uh, inspire people by not being the same every time. Uh, so it, I, I think it's a, it's a bigger concept, in fact, than, than really. It's wonderful that, you know, it, it, it basically erases the, the kind of the duality or polarity between men and women. Uh, but it's, it's to do with being uh, kind of uh, actually the minor, the minor rather than the kind of the major. And so, you know, recently I, you, you mentioned earlier, for example, the NAW uh, initiative. Uh, and, uh, you know, I think that that's done by, or, you know, set up by two men who are actually white, but it's an initiative for actually for, for, for uh, you know, minority writers. Uh, and, and so I think of them as having become themselves, if you like, a minority, because they are a, minor, they, they are a minority kind of group of people that have acted in a certain way and produced the potential that others, obviously, the majority hasn't made. So that, that's a kind of an example of, of, I think it's quite an extreme and wonderful example of, um, you know, adopting this position and, and work, being creative by putting yourself outside and saying, what is it, you know, that, that we should do? You know, what kind of initiative can we do? Mm-hmm. And what is it that is lacking? And, and kind of producing a, a writing platform that for people who would otherwise never ever have the, you know, opportunity to, uh, to kind of become writers. Uh, and, and become good writers and known writers. Mm. Okay, so you're talking about the new Architecture Writers Program established by Finn Harper and Tom Wilkinson and supported by the Architecture Foundation. So this is a, a platform essentially for aspiring architecture writers who um, are part of black or minority groups. Um, but you're kind of touching on the irony of the fact that it's established by two white men. Not the irony per no, se, no, 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 no. but the fact that in in the kind of in taking that initiative, that Tom kind of and Finn have adopted the position of becoming woman. They've become a minority. <laughs> they've become a minority. They 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 they've actually established themselves as minorities themselves, mm. and which which I think is ve- is a kind of two projects. It's it's a writing platform for for minority groups but they have themselves turned themselves to minorities by, by creating this because it's, 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 it's about thinking differently, you know? Um, it's about saying, you know, what is it that we can produce that doesn't exist? And uh, so, I, yeah, I think it's a good example of that, wonderful. Mm. Um, I have a selfish question. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to be teaching this year. And I'm curious what advice you have for teachers, um, given the fact it's been almost two decades that you've been teaching and practicing, actually. Um, this is what very advice? open-ended. What advice? <laughs> um, I, I guess I, I think, um, I, I think the best way to approach it is not to kind of 
so much teach um, students of architecture, but to create a kind of a learning environment. Because I, I think we go to school to learn how to become learners, uh, not to learn specific. I mean, we, we learn a lot of specific things, but you know, for example, if you would set out, you know, a studio, whether it is on housing or um, museums or industrial buildings, they are all subjects that, you know, the way we look at them today will evolve. You know, by the time, uh, you know, a student finishes school and starts, you know, their own practice eventually, whatever particular responses we have towards these kind of subjects will evolve. What will remain is what we learn thinking about those problems. Uh, and I think that, you know, to be able to create a, a kind of a learning environment for students um, is, I think, you know, the best you can do is, you know, if, if, if my students go away and know how to tackle any architectural problem, because they've, they've kind of, you know, learned a kind of a discipline of inquiry. I, I think that that's the best thing that I can do for them, rather than teach them how I did my housing project in France. Mm. Farshid, thank you so much for your time. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Scaffold. I'm Matthew Blunderfield, and I produce the show. The theme music is composed and performed by Andrew Rayworth of the band Stanley Park, with additional music this week by Raymond Scott. Subscribe to Scaffold on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts, and follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at scaffold underscore podcast. Thank you to Farshid Musavi, and thanks to the Architecture Foundation for their support. Thanks as always to Scandal Lynn, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you again in two weeks. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're 
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.